Amen. And I wanted to say one other thing uh, by way of announcement today. We have a grand opening of our, our library. And uh, it's in the Northwest Hall back right over here. After church, if you want to uh, go in there and look around, uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. But uh, we wanted to have a place where we could uh, have some books and study and sharpen our minds by the renewing of our mind, you know, so that we won't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. But um, we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. My prayer for you this morning is that you would do that. That as, as I deliver this message, that you would love Him with all of your mind. Okay? Let's pray. Loving Father, I thank You for this time. I thank You for all that You have done for us. I thank You for Your Son Jesus who gave His life so that we might all be redeemed. Father, I thank You for His death on the cross that saves us from our sins, that we will no longer get the punishment that we deserve. But Father, that on that day when we stand before you, Father, that we will claim the blood of Christ as our salvation. Father, we sing his praises because he and he alone is worthy of our praise. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us as we move towards a time of of just being with you and being in your word. And I thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit And I ask that you would teach us and guide us in all truth. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue this morning in our, uh, just exploring the the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And if you want to open your scripture up to Matthew chapter 5. And, uh, you know, people are experts. People are experts at justifying themselves. I want to say that again. People are experts at justifying themselves. See, we have this unique ability to convince ourselves that no matter what we've done, we're okay. You know, we, we, might, we might say things. I mean, how many times have you heard this? Well, it wasn't the best choice, but it'll be okay. Or we say something like, yes, I know I shouldn't have done this or that. How often do I do that? I don't do that very often, so it'll be okay. I don't do it all the time. See, God has given us creative minds, and we tend to use our powers for evil and not for good. We tend to use our power, our our, our creative power, to to move away from Christ rather than moving towards Him. And and you you know this is true. Now, I, I want us to take a step back and look at our society Big picture. In a book titled The Interaction of Law and Religion, Harold Berman, who was a professor of law at Harvard University and one of the most outstanding professors there, developed a very significant thesis. And the thesis of his book is that Western culture has had a massive loss of confidence in law and also a massive loss of confidence in religion. A massive loss of confidence in both of those has happened in our Western culture. He sees that uh, one of the causes is the radical separation, if you will, of one from the other. They were together, law and religion, and they've separated. 
Okay, and, and, and his conclusion is that you cannot have law, you cannot have rules for behavior without religion. Because it is religion that provides the absolute base for morality and for the law. Now this man, Harold Berman, was not a Christian. But certainly we would have to agree with his thesis he fears that Western culture is doomed to relativism in law because of the loss of an absolute. He says, we have broken away from religion. We have broken away from the concept of God. We have broken away from absolute truth. And so we are stuck with existential relativism when it comes to making laws. Now, what that means, those big words, is it means a set of alternative schemes in which one can consider that something is, is coming into existence. In other words, there are more ways about it. Okay, we have this uh, multiplicity, if you will, of all these ways coming at our existence. And so what he says there is that he says law and religion will stand together or law and religion will fall together. Religionless law could never command authority. There has to be this transcendent value that comes from beyond us. There must be a super rational absolute. Now in his book... He quotes Professor Thomas Frank of NYU, New York University. And, he, and Frank says that law has become undisguisedly a pragmatic human process. I'm trying to wrap your mind around this. Stay with me. Law is made by men and it lays no claim to divine origin or eternal validity. And this leads Professor Frank to the view that a judge in a court reaching a decision is not propounding a truth, but is rather experimenting in the solution of a problem. And if his decision is reversed by a higher court, or if it is subsequently overruled, it doesn't mean that it's wrong, only that it was or has become in the course of time unsatisfactory. See, having broken away from religion, Frank states this, law is now characterized by existential relativism. Indeed, it is now generally recognized, and listen to this, that no judicial decision is ever final, that the law follows the event, is not eternal or certain, it is made by man and is not divine or true. End quote. You think we're in a mess? Indeed. Now why am I quoting all of that? To tell you this. We are endeavoring as a society to have rules without an absolute. And court after court after court overturns some other ruling. Now when you abandon God and when you abandon theology, you abandon truth. And trying to make laws without truth and without an ultimate value is impossible. You cannot build a consistent legal system on philosophical humanism on a fluctuating, changing principle of what is right and what is wrong. See, some people, even secular people, 
are hinting at it. That if there's no absolute truth, if there's no absolute word, there is no God who sets the standard, then there can be no real law. You will never get people to keep laws that are only judicial guesses. You don't want to be held to that standard and neither do I. That whichever judge decides to, well, how he's feeling for the day becomes the law. And so we ask ourselves, what is the absolute source of truth? What is the absolute standard of morality? What is the absolute rule of justice? Where does an evil society floating on a sea of relativism find its anchor? That's the question. Do we have a standard to live by? Is there a standard that we all live by? Is there an absolute authority? Is there an unchanging absolute authority? Is there an inviolable law? Obviously, my answer is going to be yes, there is. See, we're in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That's where we find ourselves. And Jesus has made it very clear what belonging to the kingdom of God looks like. He, he made it very clear. He has said, and, and what he has said has been startling enough, but in some ways, what he has not said has even been more startling. Put yourself in the mindset of someone living and walking and, 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 and working in Jesus' time. The law was the law according to the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees in the Judeo system, in the Jewish system. Jesus has said nothing about the law and the importance of keeping it. He said nothing about the traditional interpretations of the law and the importance of observing them. No statement has come from his lips encouraging reverence for the scribes or the Pharisees. Does this mean that Jesus was overthrowing the law? Let's look and let's read what Jesus says about the law. Chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 17 and following. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, from the words that I just read to you, indeed, there is a standard to live by. Jesus himself says there is a standard to live by, and that law is the law of God. Jesus said, not the smallest letter, not the, the, the smallest stroke of the law will pass without all of it being accomplished. Not one jot or tittle, not one yod, not one iota, not one little mark, 
None of it will pass away. It is God's law. You see, he didn't come in any way to set it aside, but to fulfill it. And anyone who teaches someone to break the least of these commandments is least in the kingdom of heaven. God has laid down an absolute, an eternal, an abiding law. And it doesn't matter what you think about it. It doesn't matter what I think about it. It doesn't matter what a judge thinks about it. What matters is what God thinks about it. Because he has given us his law. Jesus said in John 17, 17, he said to the Father, he said, your word is truth. Your word is truth. This scripture becomes so important to us because here our Lord tells us that we do have an absolute. We have an unchangeable authority. I love that. In a day and age when everything changes, it's nice to have something that doesn't change. We have an unchangeable authority. Jesus is saying, let it speak. Let it be. Let it speak to us. Let it shatter us. Oh, we need some brokenness. Let it crush your evil ways. Let it overturn your disobedient lives. Let it make us face to face with God. Nose to nose. And either accept or reject his will and then have to deal with the consequences. See, we want it both ways. We want to we be disobedient, but we don't want there to be any consequences. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is saying, Scripture, the Bible, is an absolute. And this was his view, and it must be our view. To remove the absolute character of the Bible. To say it has errors in it. To say that it isn't authoritative. That it, it isn't for us today. To say that it needs to be reinterpreted. Is to drift with the world away from what God calls spiritual righteousness. See, he certainly was teaching that the way of salvation and entry into God's kingdom of heaven was not by merit, not gained through obedience to the law, but rather feeling that they had achieved merit. Jesus' followers, they were the ones who were poor in spirit, mourned for their sins. They were the ones who received comfort. They were the ones for whom the kingdom of heaven was for. Those who knew they didn't deserve it, knew they hadn't earned it. But you see, to the scribes and the Pharisees who were listening in, oh, this must have sounded like an elimination of religion, of their religion, of the ones they had worked so hard for. And everything that they stood for was being turned on its head. They've worked all their lives keeping the laws, all 613 of them, working to do everything just the way it was supposed to be done. And Jesus said, that's not the kingdom of heaven. That's not what it's about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This was huge. 
So far, Jesus had said people could enter the kingdom of God by His grace. Until the verses in our text. And He made not one single mention of the law. See, Jesus spoke about the law early in the, in the Sermon on the Mount here. Many people in Jesus' day, they wondered about Jesus. They wondered, well, what about him and his relationship to his followers and his relationship to the priests and the, and the, and the Pharisees and the law? What, what is the relationship that all of these have? What is the relationship with this new order and the, uh, compared to the old order and the law and the prophets And that's why Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so Jesus goes on to explain why his followers respect the law. See, I submit some reasons here why we respect the law. We respect the law because of its importance. Jesus respected the law. So as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers, as disciples of his, we respect the law. He told his followers he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And many people thought that Jesus did not consider the law important. He never violated God's law. He never violated God's law. When you think about Jesus and all that he did, he only attacked the traditional interpretations of the law. Man's additions to the law. He didn't violate God's law. See, Jesus came to fulfill the law and Christ's life and his teachings reflected its fulfillment. Jesus fulfilled the revelation of God. When we think about the word Torah, we think about and we we really um, translate that word as law. And, and, and what it means is revealed instruction. Instruction that has been revealed. The Old Testament contains instructions about God, but Jesus brought God's revelation, his, his showing of himself, to completion. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was the incarnate. He was Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And Jesus fulfilled the law by revealing the full depth of its meaning. When you think about the law, he fulfilled the law by obeying it. He fulfilled the law and the prophets saying, by doing what the law expected. We don't want to be held to that account, do we? We we think we can live any old way we want to live. That we don't have to respect the law. That we don't have to do that. That there will be forgiveness at the end of the day for us. Jesus never violated God's law. He respected it. We should respect it because of its importance. We should also respect the law because of its permanence. Jesus introduced important statements with verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. And Jesus spoke about the passing away of the universe and he he spoke about how the law would endure. Verily, verily, I say to you, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not an iota, not a dot, not a yod. 
See, the law can be divided in general categories, three parts. Food laws, ritual laws, and moral laws. Food laws were given to separate Israel from the pagan nations. They would be separate from them. They would not eat the same foods as other nations. They would be set apart, called out from among them. And they would look differently than the other nations. The ritual laws were intended to foreshadow Christ's coming and His work. You know, when Jesus Christ came, those pass away. When you think about how Jesus came to earth, look at uh, in Hebrews 10, 14, it says this. It says, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's why we call him the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For one offering, his offering, it, it brought redemption for everyone. That's why we don't still sacrifice lambs and, 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 and doves and, and, and grains and all the other offerings like they did in the Old Testament. Because Jesus is our sacrifice. Amen. He took care of that once and for all, for all of us. I love that. He took care of it for us. And then the moral laws, they don't pass away. They're still here. I'm glad that someone had it done and they put them in red granite out in front of our building so that we have the laws that God commanded, the Ten Commandments. They're in granite. They're marked in stone. They don't change. Never have, never will. They are God's law. See, we need to respect His law because of its permanence. But we also need to respect the law because of its relevance. I mean, Jesus taught people that they should be obedient to the law and that they should teach other people the law. Be obedient to it and teach other people the law. You see, God's moral law is relevant as a prelude to Christian conversion. How do we know something is right or wrong? Because God writes it on our hearts. Because God writes it in His Word. Because we have laws of the land that actually were established by the laws in the Bible. We understand that. We get that. And we recognize that the, 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 the point is, is that moral law is our tutor to help bring people to Christ. If you take away the law, then there's no teacher to help them understand that they need Christ. And there, I, I find this in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, where Paul writes this. He says, therefore, the law has become our tutor, our teacher, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. <laughs> we don't know we're in the wrong until somebody tells us we're in the wrong. The law helps us to know that and to realize that. And therefore, it opens up a door to faith in Jesus Christ. See, we need to respect the law because of its relevance. But many times people try to put the law, their works, in place of their relationship with the Lord. Well, I don't break any of the commandments. You've never lied. 
You've never took something that didn't belong to you? And they say, well, I, I keep the commandments. I'm a good person. And they're basing their salvation on their own works. Because, like I said earlier, we are experts at justifying ourselves. Well, I did that because, well, when some people in Jesus' disciples, they, when some of them wanted to do away with the law, Jesus said, you know what? Anyone who's guilty of that will be the least in the kingdom. Oh, it's by grace through faith that we are saved. But when you push aside the law, don't expect many rewards. That person will be the least in the kingdom. We also want to respect the law because of its representation. Jesus demanded obedience to the moral law, but he also demanded a superior righteousness. That's what he said. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. See, Christ's followers were to have a righteousness that exceeded the righteousness of those, of the scribes and the Pharisees. And you remember some of the customs and traditions they had. They wore phylacteries around their head and on their forehead where they had scripture written in it thinking that, you know, look how spiritual I am because I've got God's word on my head. I've got God's word put, put on my, my arm. I've got, I, you know, we do these ceremonial washings and, and, and we clean and, and, we're so, and cleanliness is next to godliness. And so we are, are the person who's, who's got all this, this cleanness going on. Look at me. I am so holy. You know, I even cut my lavender and I, I bring a tithe of my lavender. I bring the, the, the mint and the cumin and I turn that in. And I give a, a tenth of everything that I have in increase. Look how good and righteous I am. This was their thinking. The more righteous they were, the more indignant they were. You see, these people lived to a higher standard than probably anyone in this room. And probably we think we're pretty holy. Because we are experts at justifying ourselves. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you won't even see the kingdom of heaven. See, God says we must exceed this level to be allowed access to heaven. You know, Friday afternoon, it was hot out, but I washed my pickup. Hadn't washed it in a long time. It was dirty, and I wanted to give it a thorough washing. So I soaked it up really good and washed it and went over it, you know, and I was, I was excited to do that. I felt, well, it needs it, changing the color of it here. So I rinsed it really good, and then I towel-dried it, and, and I put some armor all on the tires, and I was getting it spruced up and cleaned up, and I proceeded to clean the windows with Windex, and I was doing just fine, and then I noticed a spot on the back window where I'd already washed the window, and I went back over there, and I squirted it with Windex again, I wiped it again, it's still there, I squirted it and wiped it again, you know, and I, by this time I'm starting to get an attitude toward this spot. 
Something had ad- adhered itself onto my back window, and, and I'm wondering about this, and, and I'm not going to let it win. I'm after it. I'm going I'm to give it all I'm worth. So I got after cleaning, and I scrubbed a little harder. And then I felt foolish. I realized that the spot was not on the outside, but it was indeed on the inside. See, my humanity is showing. A lot of people do the same thing. It is possible to look good on the outside and be absolutely defiled on the inside. Matthew 23, Jesus has these words for the scribes and Pharisees. Excuse me, Matthew yeah, 23, 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs on the outside, appear beautiful, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What does Jesus mean when he says, have a superior righteousness? It not only means to keep the details of the moral law, It also means to drill down below the surface and practice the principles and the ethics of the law. See, Jesus explained in depth both superior righteousness and the law's representation. He quoted the oral, and we're going to get into this, he quoted the oral interpretation six times in the Sermon on the Mount here. Six times. He also said, but I say to you. Here's the law, but I say to you. And he goes deeper. And he goes deeper. He deepened the profound implication of what the law represented. And Jesus wants his followers to respect the law. But more importantly, he wants them to relate to the one who gave the law. See, these have been humbling verses. They reveal a great truth. Christ is the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. He came to fulfill what the law could not do. And that was to provide redemption for all of humanity. See, we're blessed to have a copy of the written word. That reveals to us the living word. Who is Jesus. It will endure forever. Even when this earth ceased to exist. So I ask you the question this morning. What have you done with the word? Have you allowed the word to transform your lives? Are you living according to the will of God revealed in His Word? Are you living by that standard? Because we will stand accountable for what we've done and what we've been given. We've been given more than any generation has ever been given on this earth. 
and we will be held accountable for it. What are you trusting in for your salvation? That you're good enough? That you've said a prayer? That you've done this? That you've done that? Or are you relying on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? And it's important that we understand that his work is finished. Because he's the only way to redemption. There's not something else added to it. It's him and him alone. The only hope any of us have of ever entering heaven is to be as righteous and as holy as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, that is God's standard. And it applies to everybody. And if you've not accepted his sacrifice for you, all I can tell you is you need to do that. See, we are not righteous. And we could never earn righteousness. But it's simply by faith in Jesus Christ, putting your faith and trust in him, that God, Almighty God, declares us as being righteous. See, salvation is so simple. It's just taking God at his word, receiving Christ and his finished work for us as payment for our sins. Have you done that? 2 Corinthians 5.10 makes it plain that one day, one day, all people will stand before Almighty God. When that day comes, you have two choices as to how you will be dressed. Either you will appear in the rags of your own filthy righteousness, your filthy rags, or you will be dressed in the the righteousness of His Son, Jesus. Because God is going to look at you one of two ways. He's either going to look at you dressed in your own righteousness, or He's going to see you dressed in Jesus' righteousness. When he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, that's what he's talking about. If you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, then you will enter heaven. If you are not, then you won't. See, there are some absolutes. And this is one of them. But you see, it's too easy. It's too easy. He paid the price... So that you don't have to. But as people, we want to do something. When someone invites us over for supper, usually what we ask is, what can I bring? I want to contribute. I want to do something. (laughs) Understand this. Salvation does not need your input. Our salvation has been completed. It's been accomplished. All you must do is believe. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Pretty simple. For with the heart a person believes... Resulting in righteousness, but with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. 
if we confess him as Lord, if we believe in our heart, God says we will be saved. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Father, your word is a mirror that we, that we look into. And we see the imperfections. We see how much we fall short of your glory. And Father, that, that the wages of sin is death. And Father, I pray that we don't collect those wages. But Father, that gift that you give us that doesn't cost us. It's not earned, it's free. The free gift that you give us is eternal life. Father, you are eternal life. Father, I pray that you would show us the truth of your word. Even in this moment, that as your Holy Spirit examines our heart. Father, that we would recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, we got nothing. Father, apart from Him, we are doomed. Father, apart from Him, apart from Your law, our country is doomed. Father, apart from You, we will spend an eternity in hell, separated from You forever and ever and ever. But God, Your Word is true. Your word is life. Father, thank you for giving Jesus as our sacrifice. That in believing in him, we are clothed in his righteousness. And on that day as we stand before you, clothed in the righteousness of your son, the one who was fully obedient, the one who never violated your law, Father, then our righteousness will also exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And Father, we will be so joyous to enter into the joy of our Lord. Father, I pray that you would make that a reality for each of us. Father, that is my prayer. That you would save the souls of everyone who can hear my voice. Father, that by your word, they would be turned away from sin and towards your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We praise you. I ask in this time that remains that you would draw us to you. Thank you, Father, for what you're going to do in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.